Worth repeating is made possible by the 8020 Foundation, Real Ale Brewing Company, Texas A&M University, San Antonio, and Do210.com. Welcome to the Worth Repeating Podcast. In this episode, we bring you stories about gossip, rumors, and all things behind-the-scenes drama. The stories in this episode were recorded live at Texas Public Radio headquarters on our second floor, overlooking the newly opened San Pedro Creek. Our first storyteller is Frank Cavanaugh. Frank shares the rumor behind his name and how you can also lead a horse to beer. I was named after a horse. When my 11th grade students discovered this, a hand goes up in the back of the room. So Mr. K, is that why you're such a horse's ass? (laughs) Yes, a wise one, especially when I'm grading your next essay. So, According to family stories from my Aunt Helen, the family historian, my grandfather owned a horse named Frank. In 1903 and 4, he courted my grandmother in a buggy pulled by Frank. And um, Frank was, uh, well, he was, well, I gotta, I gotta tell this. Uh, they named their firstborn after the horse. And a half century later, I was named after Uncle Frank. Frank the horse was stubborn and cantankerous. And he developed a problem. Drunkenness. <laughs> so it all started one afternoon after my, <clears throat> my grandfather, Walter, had completed his deliveries in downtown Dallas. And the streets were hot and dusty. So Frank and Walter pulled up to a beer garden. And uh, Walter brings Frank to to the rail, ties him up, and orders himself a beer and a sandwich, and asks the waiter, if he could bring something cold for his horse. The waiter says, the coldest thing he has is a bucket of beer. Walter says, bring it. Maybe it'll make him less (laughs) hard-headed. So the waiter sets a bucket of beer before Frank. Frank sticks his head in the bucket and doesn't raise his head until he slurped it all away. Walter later said that Anytime someone claimed that they could drink like a horse, Walter's response was, not likely. (laughs) So the trip home was about three or four miles, and it was considerably slower than usual and less sure-footed. Walter never told anyone about uh, Frank's antics, and this became a problem for Walter when his father... Pa asked to borrow Frank for the day to run errands downtown. And 
For Walter, this caused great consternation and dread because Pa was even more cantankerous than Frank the horse. And also, Walter knew that Pa would give him hell for giving Frank beer. So, when at the end of the day, when Frank and Pa pull in back, back home, Pa doesn't say a word to Walter, and this makes Walter even more worried. So Pa is silent all through supper, and after supper he starts telling the story how Frank pulled Walter to the beer garden. <laughs> the waiter comes out and ties Frank to the rail and sets a bucket of beer before Frank. <laughs> so Pa concludes his story with a question. So Walter, what I want to know is, for how long have you owned stock in that damn beer garden? <laughs> now, you may wonder if uh, being named Frank is appropriate for me um, and whether I share any character traits with this horse. Well, I am stubborn and hard-headed, and I am a character. Um, I had a professor at UT who had a sideline in uh, researching names of, uh, researching name meanings and the uh, origins of names. So I knew that the word Frank means direct and honest, but my professor came to me with two adjectives that surprised me. Beautiful and noble. Okay, my parents were both attractive people. Um, but as for nobility, I had two older brothers and quite a few nuns who taught me that would have contrary evidence to that. <laughs> so the nuns had a sliver of hope for me because my patron saint was Francis of Assisi, the great champion of the poor, um, lover of animals, surely one of the top ten saints of all time. Well, I, if I would have known back then about Frank the Horse and his connection to me, I like to think that I would have been direct and honest enough with the nuns to tell them that my namesake was actually a beer-swilling horse. <laughs> yes, I do like beer, um, and the real ale people might like to know that. <clears throat> Um, so, uh, my, my love of beer was demonstrated in college when I wrote a four-page paper, an essay claiming that Heineken Dark was superior to regular Heineken, and I did a lot of research for that. Um, then there's that Kavanaugh fellow on the Supreme Court. My uh, nephew's sarcastically refer to him as Cousin Brett. Um, but everybody in my family is eager to make clear that we're not related to that guy. Um, in fact, two days after Justice Kavanaugh was uh, confirmed by the Senate, I went into a bar that was fortunately not well populated at the time. I marched right up to the bartender, 
slammed my fists on the bar and said, my name's Kavanaugh and I like beer. <laughs> so, um, my, I do like my name and I, I don't think I'm really a horse's ass, contrary to my 11th grade student's opinion. Um, but I, I feel fortunate that I'm named Frank, after all. I know it could, have be, it could have been worse. My father, instead of naming me after his oldest brother, could have laid on me his middle name, Aloysius. <laughs> thank you, thank you for being here. Our next storyteller is Lynn Kanapik. Lynn shares a story about a grudge that impacted more than one person and how oftentimes you cannot believe everything you hear. Good evening. So my story's a little bit different. Uh, when I moved back from Dallas in 2000, I knew I wanted to do something to give back to the community. And I decided to be a CASA, a court-appointed special advocate. Uh, I don't know where I heard about CASA, but I did, and I'm glad I did, because it, I think it was a life changer for me, and I know it was a life changer for a, a little girl named Cheyenne. She was a, a child that gets taken into the foster care system. is supposed to be there for maybe a year, 18 months at the most. Our case lasted six long years. That's a long time for a four-year-old to be stuck in foster care. So why did this happen? It's, it's kind of hard to say, and I hadn't really thought too much about it until I decided to do this talk. And my group of friends, uh, as part of this, said, why did it happen? Why did it happen? And so I had to start thinking about that. And I think the main thing is it was team dysfunction. Because there are, uh, there are a few people that are part of the team for the kids, and then there are people that are part of the team for the moms and the dads. And we had an ad litem, who is the attorney for the child, who for some reason didn't participate <laughs> as a team member, as far as I could tell. And so we ended up with a little tension between us. Maybe it was because I didn't see her uh, seeing the kids, there were two children to start with. There was a 13-month-old and a four-year-old. And I didn't see her ever going to see the kids. I didn't ever have any contact with her, except when we got to the courtroom. So at one court hearing, and we went every six months for a court hearing, at one court hearing, I said to the judge, Judge, who do I tell if this ad litem is not doing her job? And he said, well, you tell me. And so I'm standing in front of him, and she's standing next to me, and I said, well, this ad litem is not doing her job. He didn't say anything. Nothing changed. Nothing happened. She didn't defend herself. We just went on to the next time. There were lots of uh, these instances of things that I felt were being ignored uh, for my kids, and uh, there were lots of lies being told in the courtroom lies being told. And I pointed this out a number of times uh, to the judge. One time I even went after our hearing, before his next hearing, or after his next hearing, to tell him that thing she just told you about that psychiatric examination, it never happened. 
because I had talked to the people in Victoria and the, uh, at the, assistant, at the uh, place where she was living uh, at the time, uh, and I knew there had not been a psychiatric evaluation. I knew there had not been a number of things that she told the judge right in front of the court. One of the big things that happened, though, was the time that she brought to court a letter from a psychologist that said that I should stay away from the child for six months because I was a bad influence. Now, here's the deal. The psychologist never met the child, and she never met me. So how does she say this? It's some chisme, huh? <laughs> you think? You think? So as a, as a, a CASA, we had the, uh, the standing to talk to anybody and everybody associated with the case. And so this woman now was associated with the case. So I called, left a message, I need to talk to you. Didn't get a response. I called again. And I don't know if I got her to answer that time if I left the message saying, I have standing, you must talk to me. I think that's the way it was. I think, <laughs> I think it was that more aggressive way because I can be that way from time to time. Especially when it involves a kid who's being hurt. And so, and by this time, the kids had been separated too. They, they had been separated for a long time, but by this time, well, I'll tell you the rest of that in just a minute. But, but anyway, so she answered, we talked. I said, so how do you say this when you've never met us? She said, well, I think that I have been, un, un, how does she put it, unwittingly brought into a power struggle. Whose power struggle? It wasn't mine. I wasn't the one who did this. But I decided I'm not going to fight this. I will stay away from Cheyenne, who's my kid's name, for the next six months. That's a long time when you've been seeing a kid regularly, at least once a month, if not more than that. That's a long time. So we did that. Now, let me take a back step to the fact that there were two kids. The 13-month-old and the four-year-old. So at one point, the four-year-old made a, an outcry of ha having been sexually molested. And so she started doing crazy things. And so the foster parents couldn't handle it, so she got taken away to somewhere else. And the beginning of her many somewhere else's. The 13-month-old, the little one stayed there. Well, all of a sudden, after we had gotten to the point where their adoptions could happen, where the parental rights had been terminated, all of a sudden one day in court, I hear the clerk say to the judge, there was an adoption in this case yesterday. That meant the younger child had been adopted by the very first foster parents. We were in court to talk about that that day, but it had already happened. We had been talking about reuniting the kids now that they could be adopted and having them adopted together. But now their relationship was severed forever because the attorneys got together and put their little thoughts together and said, let's do this before CASA has a chance to say that we should keep them together. So the kids were separated. Uh, these attorneys did all kind of weird things. Now, I worked for an attorney for a year. I like attorneys. My, I got a lot of friends that are attorneys. I don't know why these people thought that they should take the lives of these children and be so cavalier with them. It just didn't fit for me. So 
after the, the time of my separation for six months, I got really busy. I was going to lots of meetings that there were lots of CPS, Child Protective Services people there, big wigs in Child Protective Services. And I always found out who was who, and I went and had a little chat. And I usually told them our story, and I told them this child needed to be adopted. And guess what? We got it done. We got it done. But I, yes, yes, we did. We did. Six years. She was 10 years old by that time. But here's what happened there. I never got to go to tell her goodbye. I always, was show, I always showed up at every, every place she went, she knew I was gonna show up. But when she went to the airport to leave Virginia, for Virginia, I wasn't there because I wasn't invited. And the reason I wasn't invited is because the adoptive parents had been told more chisme about me. And the reason I know that is because last May I met them. I knew that now, 15 years after this was all done, that it was time that I was okay to contact Cheyenne. She wasn't a kid anymore. She was 25 years old. So I contacted her. I found her through Facebook. She emailed me back right away. Yes, it's me. Yes, it's me. And so I contacted her. I went to Virginia. I met her and her husband and her two kids. She's now got one more because she was pregnant at the time. And I met her parents. And you know what her parents said to me as I sat in their kitchen? They said, you're not anything like we were told you were. So, thank you. Our next storyteller is Violetta. Violetta shares the aftermath of a secret that wasn't hers to tell. So I'm super Mexican. And I love, 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 I love my mom. So the flavors that would come out of her fingertips in the kitchen, the songbird melody that would come out of her throat while she was singing, this woman was special. And I love this woman, except. Except for the part where she was super obsessed with my sexuality back before this was even a thing. I mean, all you had to do was take one look at me and be like, this girl has no game. <laughs> None. I'm going to take y'all on a little time travel trip to the 1990s. San Antonio. The West Side. While my peers are listening to TLC... Salt and Peppa, Selena, they're going to their grandma's house to watch Jerry Springer. <laughs> I'm at home listening to the Little Mermaid soundtrack <laughs> <laughs> and watching Barney and Friends for fun, not for irony, for fun. <laughs> and it wasn't enough for my mom, you know? I would be at home watching telenovelas, it would be hot because it's Texas. I'm wearing like, a, like some shorts around the house. A little bit of my thigh would show. My mom would be like, Ay, tapate. ¿Tú crees que eres famosa o qué? <laughs> I'd want to go to the HEB on Commerce in Sarsamora. Yeah. <laughs> Three blocks from my house. All I wanted was some chocolate. Some like a crunch bar. My mom would be like, Ay, no más quieres andar en la calle. 
as if I were a streetwalker. And not that, that, not that I'm against that, but like that's just not what I was doing. And the older I got, the more attention that I got, the more delusional her, her accusations became. It got to the point where I was like, oh, no, 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 no. We can't do this anymore. I got to get out. But I had to get out, but also simultaneously have my mother's blessing, because if I didn't have her blessing, that projectile chancla <laughs> would follow me wherever I went. So she had to, she had to say yes. So it's the senior year of high school, and I'm like, ooh, I'm going to go to the best college in town, mom. Because here's the thing. She needed me to be educated so I could help lift the family out of poverty, right? So that was kind of the loophole for me. I go to her and I'm like, I'm gonna go to the best college in town, mom. Oh, but look, I have to live on campus. It's mandatory, I can't get out of it. Oh, bummer, how sad. <laughs> she said yes, I had to promise to come home every weekend and I had to call her three times a day, whatever, small price to pay for freedom. And so I did. I went to Trinity University. Did I party? No. Did I get drunk? No. No, I was just at home doing my thing or in the dorm room doing my thing. And as time went on, I felt like I needed a bigger caper. I'm like, okay, what do I do next? Study abroad, baby. I'd been taking French since I was 12 years old at Tafoya Middle School. And I told my mom back then, I'm like, mom, I'm going to go to France. And she said, si, mijita, lo que tú quieras. Whatever, whatever, whatever. <laughs> I reached 20, and I'm like, mom, I'm going. And I saw the look behind her eyeballs, like the gears were going. My little girl, alone in the kinkiest, sexiest place on the planet. She was like, no. Tú no te me vas, tú te quedas aquí. I put my foot down. And I also realized that she kind of wanted to show off to other people, you know, like, ay, my, mi hija está en Francia. <laughs> Times are hard. So she said yes. She didn't want me to go, but she said yes. So there I am. It's like last minute. I'm like packing. Last minute like I do. It's like four hours till like go time at the airport, and I'm still packing, and I finish up. And then I'm about to go to bed, and I realize, oh, the jar of peanut butter. Because... I'd been told at that time that Americans crave peanut butter because apparently France has everything but no peanut butter. So I got myself this little jar and I'm trying to put it in my suitcase. It's like this gigantic suitcase bigger than me. It's already full of stuff that I'm, I'm only gonna use half of that stuff, but I don't know that in that moment, right? So I'm like trying to put it in and it won't fit. And then I get this idea to like kind of gingerly sit on the suitcase. So I like put one butt cheek on it and I start jumping up and down. It doesn't work, I put two butt cheeks. And then my thighs and I'm jumping up and down. My mom walks in. <laughs> ¿Qué estás haciendo? <laughs> I'm trying to put the jar in my suitcase. 
she comes and sits next to me, and she starts jumping up and down too. <laughs> so both of us are going like this, trying to get it in. And I don't know if it was the delirium or the sorrow, but we fall over each other laughing. It's like, like I'm 20 years old at that time, and then her inner 20-year-old came out to greet me. It was the most gorgeous moment. Did it make me stay? No, I went. <laughs> I went, and it was great. Um, that was one of the last times that I saw her in really good health. She passed away in 05. Que en paz descanse. La quiero mucho. And then the cheese may got interstellar, y'all. <laughs> Fast forward 10 years after my mother's death. I'm having this run-of-the-mill phone conversation with my brother. And he goes, hey, remember that time those family members came over to the house and told us all these sordid family details about the past? And I was like, que? Qua? What? What are you talking about? He said, yeah, there's this rumor from back in the day, before mom's time, so not mom, but back in the day, there was this rumor about this illegitimate child from a long time ago, and there was this cover-up, and it was really painful. He's like, you don't remember that? And I said, oh, no. I don't remember that, and I'll tell you why, because I was out of the country, I wasn't there, and no one thought to update me on the family shenanigans. And then I realized, this whole time that my mother's so-called prophecy of me being sexually active as a teenager, it wasn't a prophecy, y'all. It was a memory <laughs> from someone back in the day. Sometimes chisme is damaging, hurtful, life-wrecking. For me, it was my liberation. <laughs> because I knew once and for all, there's nothing I could have told this woman to make her trust me. There's nothing I could have told her, nothing I could have told her. And now I'm like, ay, pobrecita, she needed a comadre. She needed to chismear, and she needed to get this trauma out of her, like in therapy, not in front of her kids. Um, <laughs> right? So I don't know if this is karmically appropriate. But I have a fantasy that I'm about to share with you all. If I could tangle the textile of time, I'm 42 now, I would go to her 42-year-old self, kidnap her, bring her to my house through the tunnels of time travel, make her brunch, serve her mimosas. She didn't know what a mimosa was. I'm like, Ma, I'd be like, Mom, here's a mimosa. Here's my art. This is who I've been all along. I love me, and I think you loved me too, but I want you to love the real version of me. But I would also tell her, cuéntame todo, cuéntame, dime, tell me everything, tell me all your stories, but make them funny. <laughs> and I know she would have, because she was that good. Our last storyteller of this episode is James Rodriguez. 
James shares a story about a job that required him to be a fly on the wall, however sticky. Ever since I was a little kid, I wanted to be a filmmaker. Growing up in West Texas, in a small town, I didn't ever think that was possible. I assumed I was just gonna live a regular, boring life and have a very boring job. But in 2013, I decided to make a few bold moves. I got married. I moved to Austin and I joined the film industry in Austin as a freelance production assistant. So one of the earliest jobs that I had was working on a commercial that had a producer from LA. Now this producer, a really nice lady, after that commercial was done, she came up to me and said, hey, you know what? I think you're a great, uh, you, you got a good attitude. You're a hard worker. I am producing a reality series next month in Austin that uh, I think you'd be great for. In fact, if you want the job, it's yours. And you would be the key set production assistant. So I said, absolutely, I will take the job. Thank you so much, I appreciate that, I'm so excited. So I immediately called my wife and I said, babe, I just got a job offer to work on a reality show in Austin next month. It's a whole month's worth of work and I'm gonna be the key set PA. My wife was like, oh my God, that is great news. I'm so proud of you, I'm so happy for you. What's the show called? Uh, The show is called Adult Film School, (laughs) season two. My wife's like, Adult Film School? What's it about? Well, we get real couples that talk to a famous erotic photographer and basically they come together and she teaches them the ropes on how to make their ultimate sex tape on the Playboy channel. Silence. (laughs) Hello? My wife said, absolutely not. There's no way you're doing a show like that. That's inappropriate. And I said, you know what? I totally get it. You're totally right. In fact, I will tell her that I'm just going to pass on the job. And my wife just interrupted and said, well, don't be stupid. Take the job. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Like, we need the money. So go for it. So fast forward to October, I'm working in pre-production as the key set PA. Now some of my duties was to help facilitate the arrival of the couple that would come in for the show, we call them the talent, and I would help them, it's true. I would help them process their paperwork, get them acclimated with the show and answer any questions that they have about the show. Um, So here we are, we've got our first couple and uh, uh, this first couple that comes in for the show, well, actually, let me start over. For those who haven't seen this show, <laughs> it's online. Basically, the, the concept is, is that you have a new couple come to the host and they discuss what their ideal sex fantasy is gonna be for their sex tape, and then we make it. We have an art department that creates the sets, we have a wardrobe team that designs the costumes, and we have the host teach them on how to get their most out of their erotic sex tape. So, Fast forward to the couple for the first episode of the new season. So this couple wanted to have a Tarzan meets Jungle Jane kind of motif. 
Very original, right? So, so uh, it's our first day on set, and uh, this is going to kick off the first episode of the season. So I make my way to set, which is located that day on a ranch near a pond right on the outskirts of Austin. Now, keep in mind, leading up to this moment, I have not really been thinking about what kind of show it was. I was busy running errands, processing paperwork, getting food for the talent. I mean, I was just way too busy to really think about what kind of show we were doing. So I walk onto set and I see a jungle like a legit jungle. They had palm trees, they had vines coming from the trees, they had smoke cascading off the ground into the water. I mean, this was a legit set, fully built, fully lit. And that's when it hit me. Oh my God, we are making a porn. So I'm on set, running around, trying to look busy and like trying not to really see anything. And then just on the corner of my eye, I see an art assistant from the art department with that same look on their face. <laughs> and we lock eyes. We have this look on our face like, oh my God, we are about to see total strangers bone right in front of all of us. I was really, really nervous. Now, keep in mind, by the way, like, just a little side note, like, I'm no virgin, all right? <clears throat> but I'm not an exhibitionist either, okay? So this was all very new to me, and I was not prepared to see that stuff. So um, just as the director is about to call action, he turns around to everybody and he says, all right, everybody. Just me, the talent, camera, and audio on the set for this location. This is a close set. If you are non essential crew, I need you to leave off set and I will yell cut on the walkie talkie and you can all come back to set. Oh, thank God. Oh. I, the, the, the amount of relief was so immense that I didn't have to see any action going on. So I leave set and I'm standing out away from set, out of view, out of sight. The director yells cut on the walkie-talkie and we mosey on down back to set. And just in time to see the talent, you know, put their uh, bathrobes on them, you know, on themselves and they're all chugging Gatorade and water and they're all, they're all glistening like they had just done like insane cardio for the last 30 minutes. And that was the show every other day with a new couple for that whole season for an entire month. Yeah. I mean, we were the production. We were a well-oiled machine. The talent was well-oiled. But what I got from this experience is that regardless of the content that I was creating, regardless of the filmmaking that I was involved in, with it being pornography, everyone on set was professional, courteous, and respectful. There were rules and protocols in place, and everyone treated everyone with respect and dignity. There are some workplaces that people work in now that don't even have that. This one did. This is my cheese on the adult film industry. 
That's it for this episode of the Worth Repeating Podcast. You can get ticketing information for our next live show by visiting tpr.org backslash WR or submit a story that you'd like to tell. If you know someone who has a great story, tell them about Worth Repeating. Worth Repeating returns in February with Rescued, stories about being saved by a pet, a person, or even a place. Consider submitting a story to tell or join us for the live show. Your stories are worth repeating. Support for Worth Repeating comes from the 8020 Foundation, do210.com, Texas A&M University at San Antonio, and Real Ale Brewing Company. Worth Repeating is a production of Texas Public Radio.